the great awakening of the institutions, the, the way in which white graduate liberals are moving further away from the rest of the country, the, the adverts, the films, the publishing industry, the books, the plays, the columnists, the newspapers, the TV, I think we can just all sense that the culture that we are surrounded with is no longer coming close to representing the country that it claims to represent. And I think that's just become increasingly visible to people as the people who dominate those institutions basically drift away from the rest of us. And that's not sustainable. There will be a correction. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Matthew Goodwin. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Brendan. I should say welcome back to the show. Last time we had you on, we were talking about the rise of Rishi Sunak to the prime ministership, the collapse of the very short-lived Liz Truss uh, era, and all the kind of chaos that was swirling around that. And now I've got you back on to talk about your book in which you historicize not only that crisis and the changing nature of conservative party politics, but all the other revolts and realignments and interesting events of British politics of the past few years. So your book is Values, Voice and Virtue, The New British Politics. I highly recommend it to listeners. It's a really good read. I guess the best way for us to kick off is if you just explain why you felt the need to write this book. We can dig down into all the stuff that it talks about, how it addresses the revolts in British politics, the changing shape of British politics. But what was it that made you think you need to do an overview of what's been happening on the political front over the past couple of decades? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there are really two things uh, that come to mind. The first is, you know, the way I see British politics, at least, is that we've had these three really big revolts. We had the rise of of national populism with, with UKIP and Farage. We then had the vote for Brexit, a much bigger rebellion uh, among many of the same people. Uh, and then we had this 2019 post-Brexit realignment of politics led by Boris Johnson. And I really, in my mind, I view those revolts as a trilogy uh, because they were all ultimately driven by, you know, many of the same drivers that, that I talk about in the book. And unfortunately, I think my view is much of our political and media class have fundamentally failed to make sense of why so many people were drawn into those revolts. And we've been given a, a long list of short-term factors in the here and now. We've had all of this stuff about Russia, Cambridge Analytica, social media, what was written on the side of a bus, who said what during a campaign. And I just became so frustrated with the inadequacy of this conversation that I said, actually, I'm, I just want to write my view of, of how British politics has changed, not just over the last decade, but really over the last 50 years. Mm and how the political elite essentially lost touch with, with much of the rest of the country. And, and I know we'll talk about it in more detail, but in my mind, all of those revolts of the last decade w were not only a long time coming, but, but for lots of reasons, I think, actually, they still have a long way to run. I don't think we're out of the woods yet. Yeah, so uh, that's a really good way to, to start the discussion. And I did want to ask you about those three revolts. And in a way, more importantly, about how they're being understood, how they're being narrated, I guess, by the political establishment, because you cover that really well in the book. And so the three revolts, as you just said, is the propulsion of Farage into the centre of political life. He got millions and millions of votes in the mid-2010s. You describe him very well as a pint-drinking, fag-holding populist who uh, millions of ordinary Brits thought, look, we're going to take a punt on this guy because the rest of the establishment, the status quo is not working for us. They're not listening to us. Then, of course, the very significant world-shattering revolt of Brexit when 17.4 million of us voted to leave the European Union. And then the vote for Boris Johnson in 2019, which was really the public restating its commitment to Brexit and pushing back against, I guess, the sections of the Remainer elite who were trying to frustrate that vote. So it was a quite a, a sustained revolt over those three big events. This was, you do, you do talk about how there was almost a, a very conscious element to it. People knew what they were doing. They were rudely intruding onto the political sphere in a fairly conscious way and saying, look, we're here. We want to be taken seriously. Uh, we can get into 
the historical origins of these revolts, because that's an important part of your book, the fact that this didn't happen overnight. But let's talk a little bit about how people get it wrong when they talk about these events. So you really, in the book, you talk about two ways in which the media class gets it wrong. Either they say these revolts are down to immediate campaigning, people just saw a glossy poster or they were hoodwinked by some nefarious uh, memes on the internet or possibly even by Russia, or they were hypnotized by posh imperial Eton graduates who all told us to vote for Brexit. So there's that side of it where they just think we're a bit dumb and we were led astray. And then the only people who do historicize those revolts have a tendency to say, as you point out in the book, well, this is a country that comes from empire. It's racist. It has a colonial history. Of course, people are going to make racist votes and make racist decisions. So cutting through those two responses to these important political revolts, how do you understand the historical component to them? How do you see the roots to that populist uh, uh, revolt over the past few years? And, and how important do you think it is that we understand that? Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're absolutely right. I mean, if you look at the narratives about Britain that basically dominate, you know, what I call this new elite, the new graduate elite that, that controls most of the institutions in society, you know, those narratives are ultimately ones that reflect the bias of people who dominate the conversation. So we've, we've been told that this is essentially about imperial nostalgia, a desire to return to the days of empire. There is almost no evidence for that, by the way. I mean, if you seriously look at the survey evidence, you know, and then, and then you read, say, you know, Satnam Sanghera or Finton O'Toole or Danny Dawling, I mean, you know, these arguments are just completely disconnected from the evidence uh, that's out there. And they also conveniently ignore all of the other countries that had empires in the past, but have seemingly not rebelled against the European Union, have not have not delivered the same kinds of revolts. So I just have not found this stuff very convincing at all. And for me, you know, the argument I make in the book is that essentially Britain has been subjected to a revolution, both political and cultural, over the last half century or so, that in a way was led by both the left and the right. You know, the conservatives under Thatcher embraced a much more radical economic liberalism that was obsessed with individualization, that was obsessed with uh, free trade, liberalizing finance. And that was followed in close succession by New Labour and Blair, who embraced a very radical cultural liberalism that basically opened the door to much higher rates of demographic change. Um, that were very focused on loosening the cultural guardrails in society that once held us together. And by the time that Britain really arrived at the 2010s, what we had was this very strong, embedded liberal consensus, which was especially strongly held by the political elite. And what I've suggested is that you know, if you think about that revolution and you think about Britain being subjected to to a revolution, actually a lot of the events of the last decade make a lot more sense. I mean, this was a project that was united by its focus on hyper-globalization, which, which we know from the evidence had very negative effects on workers, on the non-graduate majority, on the small towns, on the industrial heartlands. It was also overwhelmingly committed to what I call the depoliticization of politics, the stripping out of politics, meaningful choice, meaningful debate, mm-hmm. um, the rise of technocracy, the rise of a, a an undemocratic, in my view, European Union that, if we're being honest, uh, does not give citizens meaningful influence over the executive. I mean, the Europe. this is why I always struggled with the European Union. It was less about you know, freedom of movement and so on. For me, it was more about the fact this is not a very democratic organization. Um, and then um, thirdly, you know, what, what happened under New Labour, we had this, you know, not just increased migration, but we had an elite commitment to mass immigration, which which was essentially an experiment that is still going on today, but is one that really separates Britain from from many other Western nations. And this revolution it pleased the new elite. I mean, it reflected their values, but it left a much larger number of people uh, not just economically behind, but culturally feeling as though they're holding a set of values. They're holding a set of beliefs on Europe, on British identity, on 
diversity, on the pace of social change, uh, on who we are as a country, and feeling as though those values are not just um, absent in the institutions, but are actually now actively looked down upon by this new middle-class graduate elite that has pushed through this project. And that's essentially the sort of long sweep. And I think we can talk a bit more in detail about it, but I think if you if you think of Britain as being essentially subjected to this revolution over the last half century or so, then the counter-revolution that has found its expression over the last decade makes a lot more sense. I think um, that's a, a very good outline of, of some of the major events that have been happening in British politics over the past few decades. Uh, one of the bits of your book that I really appreciated, it comes very early in the book. It's a very simple point, but I found myself nodding vigorously when I read it, is where you talk about how the turbulence in British politics over the past few years, we've all seen that, we've all felt that, is not down to Brexit, or rather not just down to Brexit, but it's down to that political revolution you've just described. It's it's that which has created a huge amount of turbulence in British politics, this imposition by a new elite of new forms of economic orthodoxy, cultural imperialism, I guess we could call it, certainly a cultural sneering at people's values and people's uh, uh, way of life. And uh, as you say there, a, a growing feeling not only of economic insecurity among working class communities, but of cultural insecurity as well. And I want to come back to that question of what we might think is more important, the economic uh, being economically left behind or being culturally left behind. I think that's an interesting question. So that political revolution you've just described, top down, coming from a new elite. Let's talk a little bit about that. The first question I want to ask you is about the new elite. You will know as well as anyone that if you talk about the elite these days, people will laugh at you. They'll say, you're making it up. There isn't that elite. The elite is still, I guess, the Owen Jones view of kind of Tory toffs in top hats who hate chavs or whatever, however people conceive of the British establishment. So describe to us how you conceive of this new elite. Where do they come from? What unites them? You do say in the book that they are very different from the old elite in terms of, I guess, how they organize themselves and the views they hold. So give us a bit of a flavor of how you understand this new elite, where it, where it is and how it operates. Yeah. So I think obviously there's always been a distant elite in, in British society. There's always been a an old boys club. There's always been a, a dominant class. So you know, what I'm not suggesting here is that we have a kind of win. We suddenly have an, an elite and we didn't used to have one. What I'm suggesting is actually over the last 40 years or so, what we've seen is the rise of, of a new governing class that is characterized by a number of things that, that make it quite different from the old elite. It's primarily defined by its elite education within the uh, more prestigious Oxbridge and Russell Group universities. It's defined by its overwhelming commitment to uh, a liberal cosmopolitan outlook, very comfortable with cultural liberalization. Uh, It's also defined by its political intolerance, its hostility towards people who hold different perspectives, different beliefs. Uh, It's defined by its incredibly advantaged position within society where it's consolidated all of the economic gains, uh, all of the uh, arenas of cultural power uh, over the last uh, half century. And it was interesting when I was writing about this because it, it took me back to reading some of the stuff by David Brooks in America, who once referred to the American elite as the Bobos, the bourgeoisie bohemians. And, and of course, more recently, we've had writers, David Goodhart, who's referred to them as the Anywheres. Richard Florida has referred to them as a creative class. But I think since those books have come out, what I've tried to do here is really summarize a lot of new research on this on this faction, on this elite, which shows that actually they do view the world in a fundamentally different way. They are much less wedded to the group uh, links, to the group identities that, that the old elite used to cherish and used to preserve. They are openly countercultural, if not cynical of established ways of life, of institutions, of group identities. The old elite, of course, used to be instinctively culturally conservative. So there's an important difference there. They feel much less pride in the nation. They're much less likely to say that national identity is an important part of, of, of who they are. And also, 
they're increasingly embracing not just a sort of radical liberalism, but but a radical progressivism or or a woke politics, which you know you can see in the data as I write about in the book is actually held by about fifteen percent of Britain now. And and who are the fifteen percent? Well, they're undergraduate, if not postgraduate, degree holders. They are urban. They are high income. They are coming from very privileged families that also belong to this new middle class graduate elite. Uh, they are overwhelmingly dominant in the institutions, disproportionately dominant in media, the universities, politics. Uh, they are consumed by notions of his historic injustice. We cannot move forward as a society unless we talk about empire, unless we talk about slavery. They are utterly convinced that Britain and every other Western society is institutionally racist when, as I say, much of the evidence undermines that. And they are very um, uh, indifferent, if not hostile, towards those groups who hold different values. And so, you know, for me, the new elite has become actually quite problematic because as it embraces radical progressivism, as it embraces this much more authoritarian worldview that is deeply problematic when it comes to things like free speech and free expression, you know, as you've written about extensively, um, it increasingly leaves me unable um, to see how we're going to bridge these divides uh, going forward because this elite is no longer really giving any voice to voters who are coming from different groups in society. I mean, blue-collar workers, non-graduates are now almost completely absent in the House of Commons, in the BBC, in the creative industries, in the cultural institutions. I mean, we've just had a fascinating report which has said what's happening to adverts in Britain at the moment. You know, 45% of people in Britain now feel that what they're observing on television is not an accurate reflection of the society they're living in. And we're more likely to think that way than the French and the Spanish and the Germans and the Americans. So what's going on there? Well, the answer is the creative industries, like our politics, are disproportionately dominated by elite graduates, the children of elite graduates, who tend to hold these particular values, which they are now um, imposing on the rest of society. And this is why Brexit, uh, Nigel Farage, Boris Johnson, uh, these types of movements, even if people accept the leaders are not by any means perfect and are themselves deeply problematic, They've been trying to reassert their values. They've been trying to say, look, I don't share this worldview, this narrow, increasingly bizarre worldview that unites the elite class, which is why I think we are likely to see more of these revolts in the years ahead. Because on many of these issues, Brendan, as you know, we're not talking about the fringe minority. You know, on many of these issues, you know, let's lower migration, let's slow the pace of social change, let's question globalization, let's uh, uh, make politics more accountable. Uh, these are these are majority positions, right, that are held by 60, 70 percent. And if you look at the public attitudes on issues like gender reform or um, the sort of more woke positions that are pushed by radical progressives, it's, it's often 80% of people mm. who are saying, you know what, I'm not really down with allowing 16-year-olds to legally change their gender. I don't want pregnant women to be referred to as pregnant persons. And so the value divide that we're living through, actually, I think is most likely only going to accelerate. Spiked is free and it always will be. There's no paywall and no subscriptions. We want to reach as many people as possible. But to do that, we need your help. If you support the work that we do, why not become a regular donor? As little as £5 a month is enough to make a huge difference. Whatever you can give is greatly appreciated, especially with all that's going on in the world at the moment. If you want to make a regular donation, then all you have to do is go to spiked-online.com and hit the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the red donate button in the top right corner. The thing that really struck me when I was reading your book and, and just listening to you there now is that, of course, as you say, there's always been an elite in modern Britain, in Britain for pretty much forever, of course. Um, but I think what's very distinctive about the new elite, alongside all the things you've just outlined there, 
is that I think the tensions that they generate with ordinary people feel more existential. So there's always been conflict between the elites and sections of the public. There's been conflicts over economic interests, people's power in the workplace, whether we have sufficient democratic clout. There have been conflicts between people and the establishment over those issues for a very long time. But I think what happens with the new elites and this top-down revolt that they've carried out in relation to the economy, values, uh, the way in which history is understood, the way in which they see society itself, I think it creates this incredible amount of tension, existential tension with ordinary people, because it calls into question not only whether ordinary people should have economic and democratic power, but whether they are worthwhile citizens, whether their virtues matter, whether they are virtuous at all. And you write in your book, which is why the title is Values, Voice and Virtue, because some people are seen as having no virtue. They're seen as morally inferior. So the fact that there's now been a pushback against that over the past 10 years, as you outlined, seems to me entirely predictable and probably very good. But one of the V words I wanted to ask you about, values, voice, and virtue, and you describe how this new elite, this new politics, how it impacts on those different aspects of life in modern Britain. I want to ask you about the voice one in particular. So you make the point that the more that this new elite colonizes the institutions, colonizes the academy and politics and culture and television and entertainment, the more that people feel they've been pushed out of the institutions, pushed out of public life, and they increasingly feel like they're just outside looking in and looking in at a world, as you say, that they don't recognize even in advertising. So do you think the events of the past 10 years in relation to the question of voice has really been an attempt by ordinary people, not just to reclaim their voice, but to use it in the public sphere in a fairly disobedient manner as a way of reestablishing their right to take part in public life at a time when they feel they've been forced out by this new elite? Well, I think that's exactly what's been happening. We've got millions of voters who have basically been trying to reestablish their position in the public square. And they've been looking at um, institutions and not only not seeing people like them, but also seeing people that talk about people like them in overwhelmingly negative and derogatory ways. And if you, you know, if you look at the the way in which um, academics have been charting the transformation of democracy over the last 30 years or so. You know, there's, there's a growing acceptance that what we're living in now is not genuine representative democracy, which, which is critical because it sends a signal to the rest of the community about who is respected and who is not. Uh, and that's reflected in, in, in the chamber in the House of Commons. So if you're you know, working class MP, you know, there are no working class MPs really anymore. I think I counted seven for the book. You know, what's happened is the political class has been taken over by university graduates, typically from elite institutions. And the largest single group in the House of Commons today are political careerists who have only ever worked in politics. And this has led some academics to talk about the rise of diploma democracy instead of representative democracy, that essentially a liberal graduate political class have taken over the institutions of politics and the institutions of the state. And if you're in that class, it's great. You know, you 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 colonize power and you 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 basically reshape the policymaking process around the interests of your of your group. And that is essentially what's happened. I mean, if you look at all of the big issues that drove these revolts of the last decade, if you look at immigration, if you look at the responsiveness of politics, if you look at people's concerns with the European Union, with the lack of accountability, with the lack of democracy, none of that was reflected in the policymaking process in Westminster. And that in itself was a reflection of how people's voice had been excluded from the institutions. And the only voice that mattered or the only voice that was respected uh, was the voice of the experts, was the voice of the uh, political class. That's why Take Back Control as a slogan was so powerful. Um, it's why even today, as we talk here in early 2023, more than 60% of the country still say the main parties do not represent people like me. There is a palpable sense of disillusionment that, you know, as I say in the book, is actually entirely understandable. I mean, the reaction to Brexit, which certainly I think radicalized is probably the wrong word, but it certainly changed my 
my political views in a big way because my naive assumption was that the, the reaction to Trump, the reaction to Brexit, would be the opening up of the public square, that, that actually political and media elites would have to listen to different perspectives and different beliefs. But what we actually saw in the aftermath of those revolts was the opposite. We saw a prejudice that would never be applied to any other groups in society, uh, but which was rapidly uh, applied to the working class and to the non-graduate majority. So um, for me, this is this is about a lack of voice. And it's now, I think, unfortunately being compounded by you know, a widespread perception held by about 60% of Britain, which is quite remarkable when, when you think about what I'm about to say. About 60% of Britain now say, I feel like I cannot say what I really think because I'm fearful of the consequences. Uh, and there is an oppressive climate in the country, which is intimately connected with the rise of this new elite, which is, you know, which has expanded concepts like racism, which has expanded concepts like uh, transphobe and Islamophobia and so on, to essentially discredit the voice of those who hold alternative perspectives. And I've seen this, Brendan, most clearly in the universities, where as I was writing this book, we had the Kathleen Stock case, we had the Noah Carl case, we had the Jordan Peterson case, we had a record number of protests, uh, where ironically, the very institutions that basically campaign on the basis that they are open, tolerant, diverse, and committed to pluralism, were doing the exact opposite. They were purging the institutions of voices that were nonconformist, that were gender critical, that were conservative, that were pro-Brexit, historians who took a different view on empire. And thankfully, now, you know, we're beginning to see some of those voices, Nigel Bigger's book on, on, on Empire, Hannah Barnes's book on the Tavistock Clinic. We're beginning to see, I think, the rise now or an acceptance that those voices, those nonconformist voices, have to actually be listened to. But for me, this loss of voice really is paramount. Yeah, and I think the um, the way in which so much um, exclusion of people's voices and exclusion of certain ideas takes place under the banner of inclusion, I mean, they literally use that word when they often mean it's precise opposite. Uh, you know, we're an inclusive organisation and therefore we can't possibly allow this person to speak or this idea to be heard, really does demonstrate an Orwellian bent to some of this um, exclusion of certain voices. Um, Just to move on from the voice question, although it's very much linked, I think, into virtue. So this is another aspect that you write about in your book, uh, Values, Voice and Virtue. Um, Because I think what's really striking about the new elites, and this raises a question in my mind that I wanted to put to you, is that they have robbed people of their voice. And I think people are trying to reassert their voice and, and express themselves in the public realm, whether the establishment wants them to or not. Um, but it goes even further than that, doesn't it? Because the new elites not only look upon people as having ideas that shouldn't really be expressed in public, but as being unvaluable people full stop and as lacking in the virtue that we and the elites enjoy and understand and express and signal at every opportunity we can. They see them as almost like an inferior race. And that actually does have echoes of older elites who um, didn't only look upon um, non-white people as inferior races, but often looked upon um, the proletariat as a different race to the new elites. And there is a feeling of that, although it wouldn't be expressed in such crude, archaic language. There is a feeling that they do look upon vast swathes of the public as lesser beings. I wanted you, if you could just explain some of the things you found in relation to that, just the, the, the dehumanization that actually takes place as part of the new elites um, top-down project. And then the question I had in relation to that was, can that ever be fixed? I mean, there was always room for compromise with tensions between the establishment and the people in the past. You could see it working out in some way, sometimes to the benefit of one group more than to the other and so on. But can there be any form of compromise or coming together or fixing when there is such an extraordinary view of the, that the elites take of, of many ordinary people? Yeah, I mean, I think this is probably the most worrying aspect of where we are and where we may be heading in the years to come. And I 
as I say, I've been quite shocked by the reaction among some people in this new graduate elite to those who hold different views. My reading of this has been influenced by you know, a lot of the work that came out after Brexit and Trump, which was very critical of the rise of this university meritocracy. You know, and I was in, influenced by people like um, Michael Sandel and um, David Goodhart and uh, Adrian Waldridge, among others. Um, you know, some took this criticism further than others, but they said essentially, you know, one of the downsides with with this commitment to university meritocracy to the idea that having a degree is the only indicator today of success and status is that it's fueled this politics of humiliation, this idea that if you haven't passed through the universities and if you haven't passed through the elite universities, that somehow not only are you a failure and you are low status, but you are responsible for your failure. When in reality, we know the system has been rigged and I, and I summarize the research in the book, but we know the system has been rigged by the new elite for the children of the new elite. We know that until very recently, if you came from a family that was uh, headed by new middle class graduates, your chances of going into one of the elite institutions was much higher. If you came from the white working class, you're basically at the bottom of the pile. And we just saw recently a story, a remarkable story at Cambridge. It, it picks up on many arguments I've made, made in the book, but we've just had the discovery that Cambridge were offering postgraduate education to every group except the white working class, <laughs> uh, which goes to this point about status. Because in the, in the world of the universities, and believe me, I, I live in that world, um, diversity is not diversity at all. Right? Diversity is conformity. And within, within this world of diversity, some groups are seen to be virtuous, are seen to be morally righteous, uh, are preferably victims in some way, and other groups are seen to be morally inferior and are seen to be the oppressors, and those groups can be denied uh, their, their virtue and their honor and their dignity. You know, if you want to understand the new elite, you have to understand the fact that 50 years ago, their main source of status came from really two things, money and leisure. Uh, they had more money than everybody else. They wanted to show it off. And they had more leisure time. And leisure, going on holiday, was something you used to project status because nobody else could afford to go on holiday. Nobody could take time off work. But if you look today, actually, the new graduate elite no longer really use money uh, and no longer really use leisure as a source of status. They use ideology. They use a commitment to radical progressivism. It is a status marker. If you are using the language of cisgender, of heteronormative, of uh, white guilt, white privilege, essentially what you are saying is that you went to one of the elite universities, that you know the new code and the new language that comes with this belief system, and that you are signaling to other elites that you are part of this uh, club, but you are also disassociating yourself from low-status groups, from the Brexit voters, from the Conservatives, from the Gammons, from the Karens. And you are essentially, in a very subtle but, but important way, saying you have virtue and other groups in society do not. And, and, and the thing is, Brendan, you know, people aren't idiots. You know, I'm not saying something here that's particularly profound. We can all see it. We can sense it. But what's so interesting to me from the research is we now know that voters have cottoned onto this. You know, we know that a big reason why the Labour Party lost a large amount of support among the white working class is because they concluded, I would say, understandably, that they were now being subordinated. They were being relegated in the priority list behind minority groups, that, that actually the Labour Party didn't really have much of an interest in the white working class anymore. Uh, the work of Jeff Evans at Oxford, the work of Justin Guest, uh, many academics have now shown uh, that actually the big backlash, the global backlash that we are still living through in France, in Italy, in Sweden, where I was last week, in Sweden is fascinating. There is a widespread acceptance that their experiment with the revolution, with, with mass immigration, has failed, has completely failed. But even there, too, you know, workers have conned on to the fact that, that it's not just that they're being denied their values, it's not just that they're being excluded from the institutions, it's that they're now second-class citizens. 
you know, in this new moral hierarchy that we have, they don't really have dignity. They don't really have meaning. And when people are left with a sense that they are, you know, they are not as valuable or are not as seen as having as much social honor or as, as much prestige as other groups in society, that breeds immense resentment. And if that is channeled into politics, it can have explosive consequences. So I want to ask you, following on from that, and and sticking, I guess, with the issue of class a little bit, I find the term white working class really interesting. I mean, you will know that anyone who uses that phrase is instantly demonized. Why are you only talking about the white working class? Whereas my view is that it's precisely because they're so left out and frequently so demonized that I think it's valuable to try to understand why that's taking place what that community's needs might be and so on. I also think that the word white is quite slipperily used these days. It's basically a get out of jail free card if you want to criticize entire sections of society. So if you want to have a go at women, for example, you have to say white women, and then you can say whatever you want, you know, stupid white women who don't understand the importance of trans rights, for example. If you want to have a go at the working classes, you add the magic word white at the start, and then you can say stupid white working classes, they're all gammon, they're ill-educated, they're obese. They don't bring up their children properly. You can say what you want as long as you add that magic racial marker at the start. But in relation to the class question that you do write in your book about the economic impact on certain communities that this top-down revolution, this new elite has had. And of course, you write about the cultural impact that it's had, this kind of cultural imperious attitude that is constantly taken by the new elite against vast sections of the public. I wanted to ask you about the interplay between those two things and whether you think one is more important than the other. Maybe that's not the most important way of looking at it, but you talk about hyper-globalization, the way in which this left great numbers of people with not very good jobs and often in competition with people who benefited from freedom of movement in the European Union context and so on. And then, of course, as we've been talking about, you write a lot about the the cultural ousting of ordinary people from institutions, from public life, from democratic life. What do you think is the, is the motor behind the current counter-revolution, as you describe it, against the new elites? Do you think it is economically based in the way that lots of working class uprisings in the 20th century would have been, the miners' strike, strikes that took place before then, of course, trade union activism more broadly, that they were largely questions of economic comfort and economic equality. Or do you think this is more of a cultural counter-revolt where people are defending their very communities and their very lives and their very values? Or is there a link between those two things? And, and how do you think that link might work? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a fantastic question. It sort of gets at the heart of a, a debate that's still raging, both in the public debate but also in in social science i mean just before i answer it you know one of the things that i just wanted to point out about the the word white i do remember john snow the channel 4 presenter during the the aftermath of the brexit vote uh, i was waiting to go on to do an interview and john snow had sort of pointed at this demonstration or this rally and said oh my my god i've never seen so many white people before and it, it just Certainly back, you know, in sort of thinking that, you know, instinctively the reaction among many on this, in the sort of new graduate elite is that this is inherently problematic, you know, and that the moral hierarchy takes different forms. And I talk about, in particular, how the institutions respond. I mean, if you look at the evidence, and thankfully the evidence is there on how universities have targeted different groups, there's a wonderful study by the think tank Neon who find that while universities fell over themselves to target students from minority ethnic groups, only one in five had similar targets for uh, white kids from disadvantaged backgrounds. And pointing to that, obviously, you know, has made me somewhat unpopular in the universities. But given also the fact that there are so many more of them, I mean, it's a, they're a very large group relative to minority groups. So I think it's, it's something we should be discussing um, much more than we are. But the cultural versus economic nexus, I think, is really interesting. My my view is it's 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 always been unhelpful to set up an either or. So I think if you look at, at what I call hyperglobalization, the effect of of basically a commitment to free trade, a commitment to liberalizing finance, a commitment to eroding the boundaries of the nation state, basically is what it is. 
um, there is now a widespread acceptance that that has had both profoundly negative economic effects on workers. It's lowered their average earnings. It's worsened their, weakened their job security. But it's also had profoundly unsettling cultural effects by undermining social capital, the, the, the ties that keep communities together. It's weakened relationships. Uh, marriages, for example, have been more likely to break down in areas that were most strongly impacted by rising imports from China, from Eastern Europe. Uh, and it's also directly contributed to the rise of the so-called deaths of despair, to growing alcohol and drug addiction, which is especially strong among uh, working class men between the ages of 40 and, and 59. And, um, you know, Angus Dayton and, and others have shown this in their work. So I'm of the school that it's it's not either or. I think if you if you look at all of the evidence on populism, on Brexit, on on even why people voted for Boris Johnson in 2019, it is remarkably consistent. It says, firstly, that all of these revolts got their strongest support from people in the skilled working class, the electricians and mechanics, plumbers, uh, and the semi-skilled working class, not, you know, among other groups, and also voters who tended not to have passed through university, but they were chiefly motivated by these issues around culture, identity, and belonging, that it was a desire to, to deliver Brexit, it was a desire to lower migration, it was also a desire to restore trust and representation in politics. So it reminds us that these things are very closely entwined. And I'm very skeptical of people in, in my world, in universities, who say, look, none of this culture stuff, it's all a proxy for economic class. Because even if you control for people's income and you control for their economic position in society, you still find that their values are doing much of the heavy lifting, right? And so it's, it's about how they're entwined. And under what conditions does this mobilize? And I think, you know, the conditions are quite clear. It's when you get a political class that is no longer representing the values of a large majority of the country, that is no longer giving them any serious voice in the institutions in which, to be frank, is, is looking down on them in a, in a serious way. And none, none of those things have changed. I mean, you know, we've now got Rishi Sunak, we've got Keir Starmer. You know, none of that, that stuff in the political playground has changed, which is why I think we are just now waiting. We're in abeyance. We're waiting for somebody in politics to, to pick it up and run with it. You're listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. With most providers like iTunes or Spotify, it's really easy to do with just one click. And if you get this show via YouTube, then make sure you not only subscribe to Spike's YouTube channel, but that you also click the bell so that you are alerted to every new episode. So I want to come back in a moment to the question of whether anything has changed and and what the Rishi future might hold for some of these themes that you talk about in your book. Um, but I want to just dig down a little bit before that into the historical depth of your book. And, and one of the very useful things about it, and we've touched on this already, is that you do historicize the trends that are taking place. So in the British context, for example, you make the point quite rightly that it, you know, Labour's, um, trials and tribulations over the past few years aren't just attributable to Jeremy Corbyn, however much of a NAF leader he may have been, um, but actually Labour's growing distance from, from the working classes has been gathering pace for a few decades now. And lots of working class people have felt unrepresented by politics, uninterested in the Labour Party, increasingly distant from those political institutions that were founded to represent their interests. You also talk about the fact that across Europe, similar revolts populist revolts are happening. We've seen them in Italy. You've mentioned Sweden already, which I think is a fascinating case, the kind of the dreamland of uh, British progressives, that their kind of the, their utopia has, has now fallen to populism to a certain extent as well. And the debate about immigration there is really, really taking off in a very interesting way. So there's, there is something quite almost narcissistic about the the sections of the British new elite, something very self-referential where they can they see the whole world through the prism of Brexit. They think it's all down to Jacob Rees-Mogg or, you know, the, the Sun newspaper. And they seem incapable of recognising that there have been numerous international developments that are not dissimilar to Brexit. And also that this has been gaining ground for some time in terms of the populist 
feeling and, and, and the kind of feeling of exasperation with the new elites. How important do you think that was to, just to give some historical ground to this stuff and just to, to, just to make that point, reiterate that point um, that, you know, this didn't come out of thin air. This, all the things that you talk about has been coming for a long time. And therefore, as you say, is not likely to disappear in the next few weeks or months. I think looking internationally at this is really important because the, the political realignment that we've been living through over the last five years is essentially global. I mean, it's visible in, in the US where Republicans have made the same gains, um, have done much better than the British Tories at, at eating into and holding the working class and now are, by the way, eating into the, the non-white working class in a big way. And we can come back to that. Um, it's visible in, you know, look at the elections in 2022. You know, when I when I wrote my last book, National Populism, you know, one of the criticisms from people was that, well, these parties were were not going to be um, on the landscape for the long term. But look, look at last year, France, Sweden, Italy, Hungary, Portugal, Spain, um, Sweden, all record levels of support for, for, for these parties. They, they've never done as well. Uh, in those countries as they did last year. There's now a widespread, I think it's a view that you would never have heard 20 years ago, that it's it's likely, it's plausible that Le Pen will be the next president of France. Maloney is already running Italy. So yeah, there is also, I think, a refusal among progressives. And I, and I say progressives rather than liberals, because I do think the distinction is important. Radical progressives believe that history will only bend in their direction. That it is a very linear view of, of history that they hold, that, that essentially it is inevitable that the Londonization of the rest of the country, that the, the diversification of Western democracies will only ever deliver them victory, right? It's, it's a very linear view of the world. But what we've discovered over the last decade is actually a lot of voters don't want to do that. And a lot of minority voters, by the way, don't want to go in that direction. I mean, this is one of the fascinating and I would argue devastating points about where the left have gone wrong. You know, the old argument being that demography is destiny. The more that societies become diverse, the more immigration, the more diversity, the more left-wing parties will succeed. But if you actually look at how these voters feel about these cultural issues, how they feel about Scotland's gender recognition uh, reform bill, how they feel about what kids are being taught at primary and secondary school, uh, how they feel about this increasingly radical brand of progressive politics. What you'll find, as you can see in the US, in Virginia and Florida, is that large numbers of them do not share the new elite's agenda on culture. And the question there, Brendan, is, well, well what, what are conservatives and others going to do about that to mobilize that. Because if you look at a Ron DeSantis figure, whatever your view of Ron DeSantis, he's done very well among Hispanic Latino voters, who are mainly because they don't like these ideas around defunding the police. They didn't like the COVID lockdowns. They don't believe in, in the sort of rampant spread of, of gender identity theory. I can tell you, I survey and I poll British Muslims, British Hindus, British Sikhs a lot. Uh, you will find, you know, many of the same views. One in three uh, uh, minority ethnic voters in Britain voted for Brexit. They've been written out of the story, of course, because they, you know, it's much easier to try and demonise the white working class. But if you poll them about migration, if you poll them about, you know, uh, gender um, transition, if you poll them about, you know, putting kids on puberty blockers or teaching them X, Y, Z. And believe me, I mean, this is a constituency that is really not comfortable with the direction of British society. And so demography is destiny. You know, the left sort of clung to this narrative, you know, um, but it's it's going to steadily be be blown apart. The question, I maybe I put this question back to you, but can any conservatives in Britain actually understand uh, the space that exists, and are they willing to to seize it? Because the story from America, France, and Italy is there's ample space, and people are clearly going for it. Uh, but the British Tories seem incapable of understanding how the plates of politics are moving. Yeah, I want to 
actually put that question back to you again in a minute. But before before I do that, I want to ask you about um, the race issue, which you've, you've raised there. I mean, I think one of the most really poisonous elements, actually, of the new elites is the way in which they use racial politics, the way in which they racialize everyday life. And they do it in various ways. You've already talked about how they try to create a new constituency for themselves, which is largely made up of the graduate middle classes, minority groups, and so on. Um, And they see those minority groups as having very divergent interests from the rest of society, from the white working classes who are a bit racist. We've all got colonial hangover. We're all uh, nostalgic for empire. We hate Europeans, all those kinds of prejudices and so on. It's incredibly racially toxic. And as you say, increasingly inaccurate, if it was ever accurate in the first place, because in the US, in Florida, you rightly point out, we've got huge numbers of Latinos voting for Ron DeSantis. Um, Donald Trump actually improved his standing amongst certain minority groups in the US uh, when he stood in uh, in the most recent presidential election. Um, non-white voters voted for Brexit. We all know this. Why do you think race is so central to the politics and to the cultural authority, I guess, of the new elites? You talk in your book about how there are certain ideas that they all cleave to and which they try to impose across society relating to economic questions, but also cultural questions, the gender issue, uh, the race issue, the idea that Britain is a horrible racist hellhole and always has been and probably always will be. Why do you think race is so important. And don't you think there's something actually very positive in the pushback against the new elites if it chips away at some of that um, hyper-racial politicking and actually makes the case that, you know, the cultural and economic interests of certain communities is more important than the skin colour that those people in the communities might have. We now have politicians like Kemi Badenoch, who's taking a very brave stand against uh, the racialization of political and public life. And do you think we're going to see more of that? And it would be welcome, wouldn't it? I think we're going to see a lot more of that. I mean, I, I think, you know, if you if you look at America, you know, we, we're having a bit of a debate in Britain now about, you know, are we America? Are we becoming America? And, you know, obviously the instinctive reaction is, well, no, we're not. There are lots of differences. The reason I'm skeptical of that is because I think the new elite basically don't think like that. I think they genuinely are taking their cues from what they're seeing among their counterparts in the US. I think they have, as we can see in the universities, as we can see in much of the media, the creative industry, they have basically imported wholesale narratives that are completely um, adrift from the reality of the British experience, you know, from kids protesting uh, about you know police shootings in in the UK you know hands up don't shoot you know all of this kind of stuff from all the way through to the elite and the universities embracing you know decolonization um, you know white privilege training you know gender pronoun enforcement um, this is because the new graduate elite have embraced radical progressivism and I I think I do think as I say in the book it's important that people grasp why this is not liberalism uh, and why this is something very different and it is about race i think if you you know radical progressives basically have very little interest in individual rights they want to routinely prioritize fixed racial sexual gender group identities that is how they see the world very different from classical liberalism, which was overwhelmingly focused on individual rights. And that difference is really important uh, because it's going to gradually lead to the balkanization of society. And And minority groups will be the first people, by the way, to, to oppose that. If you look at Asian Americans in the US, one of the stories that really hasn't permeated the British debate is the extent to which Asian Americans are saying, well, you know, in, in the old model was we work hard, we study hard, we go to Harvard and Princeton. You know, the, the new model is you can do all of that. But actually, if you're if, if they've met their racial quota, then, you know, your kid's not going to go to an elite school. And, and the first people to rebel against this are going to be, uh, you know, minority groups. And secondly, radical progressivism is, is not liberal because it is utterly disdainful of any scientific evidence or objective knowledge 
that undermines its claims. I mean, you know, John McWhorter and others have called it a new religion for a reason, which is if you if you challenge its central claims, you are um, basically painted as a as, as as blasphemous. You're painted as a heretic. You're painted as a as somebody who's you know modern day witch who's completely um, adrift from from the teachings of your new religion. And the thing that frustrates me the most. Brendan, is that this is this is most visible in the very institutions that should be the most strongly committed to truth and objective inquiry and reason, which are the which are the universities. Um, and lastly, it's not liberal because it has absolutely no interest in the bonds and the ties that hold or used to hold society together. I mean, even liberalism, you know, one of the complaints which I which I share is that liberals can become so consumed with individual rights that they lose lose sight of the collective. Um, but even even classic liberals accepted that that things like national identity, things like national belonging, things like um, uh, a shared history uh, were important to holding communities together. I simply don't think the new elite see it that way. I think they see history as a source of shame, as a source of embarrassment. They do not feel anywhere near as attached to national identity. They certainly don't see it as an important part of who they are. And one of the interesting things that I show in the book, and this is something I, I'm going to continue to write about because I think it's critically important, is they have a completely different conception of Britishness. For the new elite, Britishness is basically very thin. It's instrumental. And it is a, basically about diversity. It's multiculturalism. It's diversity. Anybody can become British so long as they sign up to these things. Most people don't see Britishness that way. Most people say, yeah, it's great that, you know, we're open, we're, we're tolerant. But actually, our shared traditions, our shared customs and our shared history are really important. The new elite feel much less strongly attached to that. So this ongoing battle, and it is a battle uh, between more civic, thin conceptions of who we are, you know, as Fukuyama once said, you know, saying that you're welcome to the world is fine, but it's also like saying you don't have an identity of your own, right? Because if, if, if the only thing holding you together is that you're accepting of others, then who are you? Yeah. You know, and I think that that point is especially resonant among, you know, who I call traditionalists, people who are much more strongly wedded to these things and who don't want to merely see their society defined along these very crude, narrow racial categories, uh, so for the new elite, it's a long way around of answering your question, but for the new elite who have embraced radical progressivism, you know, race is is merely an extension of that. And the division of society into morally superior racial groups and morally inferior racial groups is why I and you and so many others can sense where this is going to go if we don't stop it, which is ironically the very opposite of what civil rights campaigners wanted, which was to take race out of the debate and to focus on common humanity, not to inject race into every aspect of our society from how we teach kids in primary school all the way through to how we treat people on the NHS. Very well put. Lots of food for thought there. I have one more question for you, which is really the question that I put to you. You put it back to me and now I'm putting it back to you, which is the question of what the Conservative Party can do, if anything, about these issues. And it's also the question of what might happen next. So if we look at the current discussion about the Windsor framework, for example, now people will have different views on the Windsor framework. Some people think it's good. Some people think it's okay. Some people think it's rubbish. That's fine. But what has concerned me has been the discussion around it, and particularly in certain sections of the media, in the amongst the media elites, where there is this open discussion now where people are saying the wonderful thing about this framework, the wonderful thing about what Rishi Sunak has achieved is that it it looks like a restoration of normalcy. The adults are back in the room. That old phrase has been wheeled out again. I was listening to John Sopel who was saying, you know, after the freak show of the past few years, that's how he described it, we finally have a return to evidence-based politics. And you just think it is quite insulting to refer to people expressing their democratic views as a freak show. And then, of course, we've had columnists in The Guardian saying, uh, you know, what we've seen over the past few years is vandalism, essentially. They, they see Brexit as vandalism. And now we're being reminded of the importance of establishment statecraft, which is really a way of saying, you know, politics has been returned to the people who know what they're doing, the clever people, the good people, the new elites. 
So that concerns me. Now, of course, they say this all the time when something good in their view happens. I mean, remember when Macron was elected in France and the economists put him on the front cover walking on water and describing him as the savior of Europe. So they have a tendency to get overexcited whenever there is a victory for, for, for the new elites. But are you, are you concerned that if there is no one in the conservative government or the conservative party who can make hay with these themes that you and others are talking about, we expect that Labour won't really be able to unless there is a, a, a return of a kind of more old Labour, Tony Benn view of the world, I guess. Are you concerned that because of the lack of pushback within the political world against any of this, that it might be a bit of a lost cause for those of us who really want to put the new elites on the back foot and reestablish liberal values, freedom of speech, the right of ordinary people to have a say in public life, and what we would consider to be important virtuous politics that includes all people? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great way to put it. I think essentially in my mind what we're seeing is is the rise of a new consensus in politics, a kind of return to the managerialism, to the more technocratic, uh, expert-led model that uh, that perhaps we you know we saw more of in the two thousands and less of in the twenty tens. And politics, of course, is like a a seesaw. You know, as Michael Oakeshott once said, you know, first you get the politics of faith that is about emotion and ideology, the taking back control. Then you get the politics of, of pragmatism, of technocracy, of experts, and, and, and you know the ongoing tension between the two is that you know they can always both go too far, as we saw during COVID. You know the experts, the technocrats, in my view at least, you know went way too far with the philosophy that was guiding them. You know, and I think we can also see problems with Boris Johnson and the the, the kind of the Brexit wing of the Conservatives, and they. Also, at points, really lost lost touch with their mission and what they were trying to bring about. But where we are, I think, today is is seeing the sort of restoration of this of this revolution. Right? I mean, if you look at what what separates left and right today, hardly anything. Both committed to a big state, both committed to big spending, both committed to high tax, both committed to high immigration, both very comfortable, basically, with globalization. The only difference is that they've sort of been forced into accepting Brexit. I suspect in the years to come that will increasingly, um, you know, make way for a sort of closer relationship. But we are, I think, in some ways now back to to that that sort of stripping politics out of politics. I think you know the real the real winner today is is not Keir Starmer in the polls, and it's not Rishi Sunak, and and it's not the grown ups coming back into the room. I think the real winner here is apathy. I think the real winner is a lot of people looking at left and right and, and, and thinking we're back to consensus politics. We're back to, you know, two parties that are really not actually reflecting what the last decade was all about. I mean, the realignment is is on pause. I mean, it's not being seen through. Uh, and there are lots of MPs, by the way, Brendan, who think like this. I mean, you know, I spend a lot of my time as you do at various events and talking with various people. I mean, you know, conservative MPs are, there's a big chunk of conservative MPs who are very keenly aware that they have completely lost touch with this realignment, you know, on on issues like the free trade agreement or the new deal with India, you know, where young Brits can go to India to work and young Indians can come to the UK. I mean, you know, the whole thing is is kind of crazy when you consider what people were trying to bring about over the last decade. Did they really want their migration of 504,000? Did they really want 1.1 million visas being issued? Did they really want the small boats prices out of control? Did they, did they really want, you know, 16-year-olds being allowed to legally change their gender? Or as Lisa Mandy said, hey, why not 13-year-olds? I mean, is this what people want? Is this what people want for their society? And I think the the pushback um, that, that found its expression over the last decade I think is in abeyance. I think people are sitting it out. A lot of people that went conservative in 2019, about a third of those people are now saying they're undecided. They just they don't know who to support. I think there's a big chunk of the Labour vote that is very accepting of the fact that, you know, Keir Starmer is no real offer, no real charisma. You know, I was running focus groups last week in Stoke-on-Trent. Trust me on this, Starmer is not cutting through in a real way. People are just shrugging their shoulders. They're all the same. Nobody seems to be dealing with the long-term structural problems that are facing the country. 
uh, and nobody seems to be acknowledging what has just happened over the last decade. You know, if anything, the great awakening of the institutions, the, the way in which white graduate liberals are moving further away from the rest of the country, the, the adverts, the films, the publishing industry, the books, the plays, the columnists, the newspapers, the TV, I think we can just all sense that the culture that we are surrounded with is no longer coming close to representing the country that it claims to represent. And I think that's just become increasingly visible to people as the people who dominate those institutions basically drift away from the rest of us. And that's not sustainable. There will be a correction. There, there has to be a correction. There always has been a correction. The question is, who will lead it and when will it arrive? Matthew, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.